my favorite part of what I do is the incredible network of friends that I have met and worked with and gotten to know as a result of my career and how much they have meant to me and how much I've learned from them and how that in and of itself, Michelle, has become a real mentorship for me. And I value the opinion of the people who are older and I value the opinion of that reverse mentorship of people just starting out who have a different point of view. And, you know, I, you know, always be open to that and never be set in your ways because there's always a better way to do something or a different way to do something. Welcome to Mentors on the Mic. I'm your host, Michelle Miller, a New York City native actress with credits in film, television, off-Broadway, and commercials. Every Monday, I'll bring you an incredible mentor in the entertainment industry, focusing on how they started and how they moved up to where they are today. Thanks for listening, and let the episode begin. So this is a very special episode for you all. This is going live, this episode, on Monday, August 24th, which just so happens to be my birthday. I just wanted to say this podcast has been so freaking amazing. It's a lot, right? So I'm recording and editing and scheduling guests and writing for you guys, but it's amazing. And, you know, in this sort of cloud of exhaustion I have currently right now, I still have the peace of mind and just the desire to just thank all of you guys for listening to this. I've also really enjoyed getting cool guests. The next few weeks will have really insane mentors in entertainment. And this week's episode in particular features a mentor who I learned a lot from. Adina Pitt is currently the Vice President of Content Acquisitions and Co-Productions for Cartoon Network. Remember Cartoon Network? I have very vivid memories of watching, like, the Powerpuff Girls, Johnny Bravo, Dexter's Laboratory, Captain Planet, and so many more. Those shows meant so much to me. <laughs> I, I caught up with Adina on what Cartoon Network looks like now. She's responsible for content acquisitions, which I had to ask her what that meant. And uh, it has to do with acquiring programs to air on the network and the term time, so for how long they're they're playing on the network. She helps to decide what shows kids are watching right now. When kids turn on the channel, they are watching carefully selected content that she helped choose. It's really fascinating to think about and what's specific or differential for this network. As an actor, I actually ask myself this a lot. Whenever I get an audition for a network, I have to ask myself, what is that specific network's tone or brand? What kind of shows do they put out? And I also asked her, how did she get into acquisitions? Why are, you know, reboots so popular, for instance? We talked about her previous roles at HBO and Nickelodeon. What was it like working at those networks? She spent 10 years at Nickelodeon, featuring some of my favorite shows, including Rugrats, Peanuts, Blue's Clues, so many more. Adina also briefly touches on gender disparity in the workplace and supporting other women. She emphasizes the importance of networking and acquiring mentors and gives us some great advice on how to do both. Finally, we discuss her thoughts on the future of programming post-COVID and whether there will be more of an audience for animation when this is all done. I also wanted to quickly point out that she happens to be the wife of our guest from episode three, Michael Pitt. So, I mean, that's a power couple in entertainment right there. Without further ado, let's welcome Adina Pitt. Hi, Adina. Hi, Michelle. How are you? Thank you so much for being on Mentors on the Mic. Thank you for asking me. This is very exciting. I'm very excited to talk about everything that you've worked on, how you got to where you are. But I always like to start off with, how did you start working in the entertainment industry? What was your first job? My first job that I can recall, which really had no... Well, no, it had tremendous influence, I guess, in that it taught me I was going to not be good at live action production. And that was, I was a PA on a movie that was shooting in Puerto Rico when I was in college and it was shooting over the summer. And so I was able to get a job as a PA and 
I had never, I didn't know what I was getting into and the hours were brutal and it was so much work and I have so much respect for anyone who works in physical production, but I discovered that that was, what's so great about internships is that you get to experience what it is, right? And taste it and say, "Mm, I don't know that this is right for me. And I can assure you, not only did I think it wasn't right for me, I'm sure the people I worked with (laughs) thought the same thing. But my first experience with children's media was an internship at WGBH while I was at Brandeis in, in Massachusetts. And I stayed there for several years. And that was, you know, I wanted to be there. And I had already chosen my path of getting into children's entertainment. But it was really such a great experience and one that I have carried with me all these years and some of the intellectual property that I had any small hand in working on are shows that are really important to me even today, all these years later. And I'm talking, I think it was 1990. So it was a long time ago. Wow. I mean, that's a really exciting start that you have those kind of memories and some of that content is still stuff that you're so proud of. It was really something because I was able to work with some very incredible, you know, women have played a tremendous role in my life. As I look back at the influencers, I have to call that out because when I was deciding, I was a double major in college, right? I was a theater arts and early childhood education. And I realized when I was doing my student teaching that even though it was something that was super fulfilling and I loved working with the kids, I just didn't see that as a path for me. And I knew somehow deep inside that I was never going to become that famous actor that I thought I could be. And I already told you about physical production. So I was trying to figure out where where does all of this fit in? And that's when I decided I wanted to marry the early childhood education experience with the theater arts. And what do you do with that? Well, you go into children's entertainment. And Mm. so that's when I got my internship at WGBH. And I spent, you know, a long time working on whether it was proposals for the uh, CPB or it was, you know, to get funding for some of these shows, which because it's a public broadcaster or doing music cue sheets for the original, original Degrassi junior high show or, you know, working on the proposal for Arthur and, uh, or getting audience members, schools to bring audience members for the live action, where in the world is Carmen Sandiego? There were a lot of things that I just didn't realize at the time, you know, they just seemed, it was really hard and long hours, but so meaningful. And it, and then I just moved on to graduate school in New York to really, really try to uh, fine tune that at a program that was relatively new at the time. I don't think they had even five years under their belt at the time. I could be wrong, but it was in the School of Ed, which at the now it's Steinhardt, but at the time was called CNAP. And it was Educational Communication and Technology, and that was a master's degree. And in that program, I met some really fantastic people. And so that's when, you know, things started to shape and I started to intern at Sesame Street. And there were just, you know, I knew that if I didn't get a job in in children's media, I didn't know what I was going to (laughs) do. It's just like, I'm going to do this if it kills me. That's great. And did someone give you advice to get your master's in, um, in early childhood development and educational communications? Was that someone giving you that advice to go do that? Or did you just feel compelled to? I wish I could say yes, but I, I will be very, very honest with you. I felt like I needed to learn more about that that area of entertainment, which was was still, still by today's standards, relatively new. I also was very much unprepared to go out into the real world, and and I know that sounds really corny, but you know when all you know is school, and you love school, you can be a, a lifelong student, right? I mean, people have stayed in school and gone on to get all kinds of degrees for all kinds of reasons. In my case, I just wasn't ready to. So it was it was it was a it was it worked to my advantage. I wanted to be in school. I wanted to learn more. I even thought about getting a PhD, but that would have taken even more years. And at some point you do say, all right, I'm ready to go and, and try to find something that's not an internship, something that's more permanent. Makes and sense. I think being at NYU, I, I really loved it because it was equal parts terrifying to move into move to a city by myself. And and but but I like I said, I 
it was such a fun time. I learned so much. And, you know, I've taken a lot of what I learned there with me, in particular, you know, things like cognitive theory, how a child learns, how a human being learns. And, you know, those are really, it was just a great program to kind of set me up for what was next. So, and yeah, and then the job search began, Michelle, which is that really fun thing that we all <laughs> remember or are always in. If you're freelance, you know, you're constantly looking you're and constantly, that. Yeah. this is before the internet. So right. it was, it was a lot of phone calls, a lot of reading articles, a lot of letter writing. And it was, a, it, you had to be disciplined. I, I think you still do today. It's just that today, before you didn't know how many people you were up against. Now, when you submit to any of these you know, online search portals, it's really intimidating, isn't it? Because you know that there's tens of thousands of people potentially looking at the same thing you are. Yeah. I mean, that's pretty much true. I'm trying to think of examples, <laughs> but yes, I, there's so many like listings. There's so many, you know, you know, you think of like LinkedIn or Indeed and yeah. you know, like uh, crazy. And a lot of them, sometimes the positions have been filled before you even you know, before, before you, you submit. Also, well, so that, you know, before, as we're touching on the job search, what made you decide to stay in New York instead of going back to Puerto Rico where you're from? So nothing would have made my parents happier than to hear, okay, I'm ready, I'm coming home. And, and I'll be honest with you, I didn't have the, my father has, you know, been self-employed all of my life. And, you know, he always had that entrepreneurial spirit. I think that I inherited his ability to be an extrovert and be a real people person and to, you know, the world of sales, sales and buying, that's a real exciting space. And that's where he lives. And, you know, that's where he worked. And if I had gone to Puerto Rico at that time, Michelle, I would have had to start my own thing. And I was 23 years old, 24. I just didn't have the same ability or, or I get, maybe I was scared to, to try something on my own then at that time, you know, Telemundo was the one place there that had some kids shows, but those kids shows were 20, 30 years old. They weren't, I remember talking to somebody there and seeking their advice and they said, you know what, you are probably better off staying where you are and trying to get a job at some of these upcoming networks and see what they're doing because, you know, otherwise you're just going to be working crew on one of these shows. You're not going to be able to really make a mark or make a dent. And uh, as my mother says, you know, we make plans and God laughs. I stayed. Yeah. And it was really hitting the pavement uh, every day trying to find, you know, when you don't have connections and, you feel like you have so much, but if you only hired me, I would be so great. And I could, I could, I could contribute so much. Well, it's very hard to sell that when someone doesn't know who you are and they don't know anyone that you know. So right. it was a very, I was very lucky to have gotten my first paying job at HBO as an assistant. And the, you know, the person who, 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 she didn't recruit me, but the person who called me in for an interview happens to be one of my closest friends to this day. And I started as a temp and, and then I moved on at, from the temp pool as an assistant and I was there and it was a great experience and, you know, everything happens for a reason and I just always knew that I wanted to get into the kids space and I worked every day to try to make connections and to, to get in there until it got to the point where it took four years <laughs> I hope it doesn't take everyone four years, but it took that felt like a lifetime at my age. I was so thrilled to to have that experience at HBO. When I started at Nickelodeon, I felt like I had arrived and they could have offered me any job there. I would have been so excited to, you know, mailroom, anything, right? Any I was willing to work yeah. from the ground up. And I and I mean that with no disrespect to anyone working in the mailroom. I have great respect. I say it because I have respect. I just want it in. And I spent ten really glorious years there. Yeah, that's, across that's a, night and TV land. That's not a short while. That's that's a good amount of time. I mean, that must have been a really great place to work. They were fantastic. Oh. You know, they, they, that those were when I was there. We're talking about 1998 was when I started there, and I was there till for 10 years. And you know, that was Rugrats and SpongeBob and Peanuts, the best, and, and just I mean, you name it. We had 
You can't do that on television repeats. We had, oh yeah, cartoons. I just remember just some great, great things. Uh, in the preschool space, of course, you had Dora and you had these really fantastic shows that were coming up, you know, blues, clues, things. It was the beginning of, of that chapter of that brand and Noggin. And to be a part of that history and to be a part of that team that had even a small hand in some of this was just, it was a real privilege to have that experience. And it's interesting to think about it because sometimes, you know, we look at jobs and we always want to have like a niche or like something specific that we're focusing on because, you know, it sets you apart, but it also really, you know, you're lucky in that you, you knew exactly what you wanted to do. You knew exactly what kind of job or what topic or what, you know, acquisitions is very specific, but you know, that, that's, that's what you were interested in. Did you feel like that was an advantage or was it hard or difficult to get a job because you only wanted to work in maybe certain networks that geared, you know, were geared toward to, well, you know, uh, it's so funny, Michelle, because actually I'm glad you mentioned that when I was an intern, well, like I said, at WGBH, we did whatever, right? I did whatever I was asked to do. Uh, so, hey, we need you on this. We need you to work on this. We need you to do this over here. Okay, great. So there was no real one lane, and that was fantastic. When I worked as an intern during graduate school at Sesame Workshop, I actually worked in their research department. And I discovered, okay, this is absolutely fan- uh, fantastic, super, super, super charged. I was around all these PhDs, brilliant people. And I realized I'm not right for this. And, Mm. and, you know, so, but the job that I ultimately had at HBO, I only ever wanted to work in development. That's what I fancied myself, but I had never developed anything. And then what was interesting is that I ended up working for the content acquisitions department at HBO. That's where that happened. I had never even heard of it. And, you know, over time you get to know the process, the people, I started reading contracts and familiarizing myself with the lingo, with the people in the game you know, who are the suppliers of content. And it was very interesting to find out that some of those suppliers were also working in the kids space. So when I moved over to Nickelodeon, it was a wonderful transition, but I I knew about the markets and I knew about, you know, it was a wonderful education at HBO about the business. And I found it really interesting. And so a friend of mine, I was also doing some reading for Showtime and doing like, you know, doing coverage. And it was kept coming back, you know, you might be better off doing this, this, and this. You know, it was clearly that the, the universe was saying to me, stay in this lane, stay in this lane. And I remember somebody said to me, you know, Adina, I know you think you want to do this, but actually you would be really good at, you know, in the content acquisitions and wow. co-production lane because you love the content and you, and you love that process, the making of and and following that creative process, but you also like the business of it and you like the people process. So it's all part and parcel. And I was really upset when he said that because I felt like somebody had just said to me, wait, you you need to just like burst my bubble. But what he was really doing was giving me some tremendous advice at a very young age that I will forever be grateful. And, you know, if I had to talk to my younger self, I would have, I wouldn't have been so hard on myself. And I would have said, listen to people, quicker because they, most of the time, people who are willing to give you good advice, people you trust, you know, they, they're coming at a place from love and experience and, you know, and, and, and that's a great place to take advice from. It's not like a total stranger, right? Who doesn't know you or it's just really, tip. that's how I ended up there. I didn't plan on that at all. Well, so then this is actually a perfect time to then ask the question for our listeners. What exactly is programming, uh, programming acquisitions and co-productions? Right. It's a very fair question. Something like <laughs> So basically, companies, content companies, they generally have different lanes in which they operate for their content, right? They have some, some of them have studios where they produce original content and that they wholly own that intellectual property, what we call IP. Uh, they can, you know, they can produce movies, made-for-television movies, series, shorts, whatever it is. And a lot of times, companies are pitched properties from companies from around the world. So there could be a Canadian production company, there could be a British one, Australian, Brazilian. And you name the country. There's there's content suppliers and production companies and distribution companies, and they will come to you with an idea, 
and you will figure out the business model of, of who pays for what, right, and who produces what, and who gives creative feedback to whom, and you kind of share in that intellectual property, and so it's almost like you're renting the runway, right? You, you in some cases, you will license it for a few years, whatever it is. In some cases, if it's a movie, a theatrical movie window, it could be for uh, a couple of runs, a couple of plays, or a couple of months. It depends. I mean, there's so many. There's so many types of deals that you could do, but in some cases, you can license a series or an intellectual property for a decade or in perpetuity and still not own it. So there's all kinds of deals that you can do when you work with third-party production companies or creators outside of the in-house model and. A lot of the startups, right, the SVODs, they started by aggregating libraries that were sitting dormant, right, that nobody had seen in a while. So, oh, my right. goodness, all those 80s cartoons or whatever it was, they just picked them up just to populate their platforms with content. Mm. And then they could ascertain who was, who was watching what and start formulating their content strategy based on, on those algorithms. And I'm right. sure it's infinitely more complicated than that. But, you know, there's a reason why all of the channels and all of the platforms that you watch, they have very specific brands, right? And so you'll go to the food channel, the food network for a particular type of show, right? For a particular type of content. You will go to CNN for something very specific. It's no different in the kids space for Disney, for Nickelodeon, for Cartoon Network, just using those through PBS. As in, there are brand attributes of each one of these platforms. So when you think about content acquisitions, if I'm working at Cartoon Network, I'm thinking about with a very specific lens, brand filters that we have, kinds of shows that we would go after that could differentiate us from the competition. And, right. and I think the SVOD world has really kind of thrown everything into a frenzy because you can pretty much serve anything. It's like a big buffet, right, of content. Whereas, you know, you knew that if you went to Disney, you'd get a certain type of offering. Or and it was almost, it's almost like it made it easier. <laughs> you know, you really have to know, you either have to be a really good sampler or, you know, you have to know what you're going for to some of these platforms because there is just so much content to pick from. And I mean, as a consumer, it couldn't be a better time because you have your, you, right. can, you can pick from so much, but it makes my job today by today's standards super exciting, but also really challenging because you have to then look at IP that you really think is going to stand out in this very, very, very busy landscape. Do you think that there's more of a desire right now for, you know, reboots of, of original content and just having a new face or a new thing to that or bringing back that original content from back in the day, appealing to people who are older who might want to have that nostalgic factor to it, you know, watching their shows from when they were kids, showing their kids the cartoons they used to watch. Have you noticed sort of a difference or is it both very appealing right now? I think everything is, is, is on the table, Michelle, because I've seen, look, we've done it ourselves. We've brought back shows that, you know, had been, that, that had not been rebooted, shall we say, in, you know, in, in 10 years. And, and you see that happening at our competition. And, and I, I'll refrain from naming what the shows are, but I mean, I think that there's a real, people have a very nostalgic fondly nostalgic memory of certain shows and some of these shows were real hits the ones that didn't some of them have been on the air since they started some of them have not right and but it's really interesting when you go back and watch those original episodes of some of your favorite shows and you say how in the world did I watch this this is unwatchable which is why the reboot happens because you want to make it relevant to today's audience but you want to hold on to that that DNA that made that IP so special and yeah. I do think that there is, you know, if, if you have in your library of content as a company, some really special shows or movies, where of course you're going to want to bring them back and keep them, try to make them evergreen. But you also have to have one foot firmly planted in the future. What is that next idea that will revolutionize you know kids and and the media and if you didn't have people thinking that way we wouldn't have some of the things that have come up that have really done exactly that and we wouldn't have jobs right 
I was just thinking specifically, you know, with COVID right now, there's probably this desire for content that's already created, right? Because you don't know how long things are going to take to film and there's been such a break. So I imagine, you know, revisiting content that already exists is very appealing right now until things start to pick up again. Yes. And it depends on that. So for, so when we talk about general entertainment, that's one series of considerations, right? Because you're talking about an 18 plus audience, which are effectively adults. When you talk about general entertainment, there's certain considerations that you take into account. You know, there's that nostalgia factor that people be like, oh my God, I'm watching The Love Boat or whatever it is. When you talk about kids content, it's very hard to have nostalgia with a child because your demo is there's kids two to five and six to 11 and up to, you know, teenage years, they don't really have, their nostalgia window is much shorter than the one that you're talking about. So the, the many of the shows that the kids within the last decade have grown up, they're still active or you can find them somewhere. So the reboots are actually fresh to them. It's the older siblings or the parents who are looking at it saying, oh, I remember that. That's right, or, or picking right. up the show. But, you know, in the kids space, depending on whether it's on the linear platforms or non-linear platforms. And by linear, I mean, obviously, if you, if you have a cable channel versus an SVOD or an AVOD channel, that's the non-linear space. You, the way things are showcased is very different. The way shows are showcased, you know, you can binge watch things in the non-linear space. But when you're in the linear space, you're kind of being told this is happening at this time this is how many episodes you're going to get. We're going to do a marathon of this or whatever. So it's, there's that to consider as well. And so bringing back shows that have not been seen for a while is not as easy as you think in the kids space to put it on certain platforms. It is on, I think on the nonlinear space, it's probably a lot easier because I think it's probably less risky. You know, if you don't get any viewers, you know, it's still the the business models for linear and nonlinear are very different. And right. we don't even have to get into that, but but that factors into a lot of that bringing back the old shows. Got it. Okay, so let's go back to, to Nickelodeon. So you were there for you said ten years, right? Yeah, ten mm-hmm. years. You start off as a coordinator, which is that is that like a very typical entry level type position? Do most people do you know start with assistant? You know, I can't remember. I think that's fair. I had been an assistant at. HBO for four years. So they probably thought, okay, she's ready yeah. to be the coordinator. Makes sense. That's where I think. And also that was the job that was available. I mean, I, right. I, I would have been so happy to accept any point of entry yeah. to, to get into that brain. And, and, so, um, and you were there for two years I in, moved as a coordinator. Yeah, I yeah, moved you moved up quickly. I was going to ask that. Is that, is that a normal? No, uh, yeah. I don't know what happened there. Uh, <laughs> I really don't know. I think, you know, a, a lot of... You're great uh, at your job. No, I don't know about that. But I think I think they were going through growth and and it was just an area that, you know, for me at Nick, I found my, my niche in working with the global markets and working with our international brethren there. And it was just a really, and continues to be, there's still some of my closest friends, a super fulfilling aspect of my job is that what people don't realize in the kids space and, and why would you necessarily as a consumer, but I hope it's comforting to know that the creation process for kids content is really, there's, it's done with a lot of TLC and, and it's very, very global. And some of the great shows have come from all over the world. There's not just one location. And so you get to meet a lot of people from a lot of different countries and cultures and, that was something really fabulous that I learned thanks to my time at Nick and carried over. I didn't, you know, originated it at the Cartoon Network, but I certainly carried it over and I have, you know, embraced it. And it's, it's a tremendous part of, of my job. Yeah. I mean, it sounds great. It's, it's so wonderful that that, you know, that was something that not only were you really good at and, ex- you know, excelled at, but also really loved. You could, you could hear the passion when you talk about it. And it's great that you still are in touch with people. I mean, that's always a plus. You have those lifelong friendships and, yeah, and also colleagues. Community. Yeah. But I stopped looking at, at, at titles. It's really, you know, what you do and and how you feel about your job is so important i think having achieved you know arrived at that level afforded me an an opportunity to to have a say or a seat at the table in, in some regard right but 
I would like to see, of course, I'd like to see more growth for women in media. I love that you mentioned that because I read a lot of books on that and read a lot of articles on just mentorship, especially for women. And I was curious, so obviously you're a strong female role model for many, uh, a strong role model in general, but specifically for women. I, I can see, I'm, I'm sure a lot of people, myself included, look up to you. So what do you see in work? Do you see a lot of women there? Do you feel like it's difficult for women to move up? I mean, we don't have to talk too much about this, but I just maybe wanted to touch base, especially since I do hear from a lot of women that A, they don't see a lot of women around them, but also they don't really sometimes know how to pull other women up too. And, you know, it's this very sort of difficult position where sometimes we see that if you ask people who their mentors are, we get a lot of male mentors. And so just wanted to briefly ask you about your thoughts on that. I mean, look, it's a very complex topic because... true. I have never shouted from the rooftop that I am a Latino woman. And I did that very deliberately because I didn't want to be, I didn't want people to say she got her job because she played that card or she, she, whatever. I don't know. It's very, saying that you're from Puerto Rico and New York is not that impressive. People are like, yeah, yeah, whatever. Because there's more Puerto Ricans here than there are in Puerto Rico. It's true. It's so many. Who cares, you know? But so that was it. But it never, I wasn't, I wasn't raised that way. I wasn't raised to, you know, I was raised to just, my parents really felt strongly about you know, getting as much education as possible, working really hard. And I think those are really important things that I want to pass on to my kids. Having said that, as a woman who's worked in corporate America now for decades, of course, there's going to be disparity and you're going to be in meetings where you feel that you are uh, either not visible or, or, or they don't hear you. I think, yeah, it's hard. I mean, of course it's hard, but I try very hard to speak my mind and find my voice and to have my voice heard in a way that is constructive and adds some value to the conversation, right? Or to the project or the process. Absolutely. I am human. I have of my course. moments where I just, you know, have a tough day. And I think during this pandemic, it's, it's exacerbated a little bit more. And because you don't have that face-to-face and I feed off of the energy of other people and it's hard to get that without having that, that contact. But I do think it's very important for women to support other women. And I don't like it when women don't behave well with women in the workplace because I think that you're perpetuating a stigma that is there that we can dispel. And, you know, I've always made it a priority for me to hire women you know, I talk to everybody, but it's very important to me to give them a really fair chance. And I spend time, you know, on mentoring groups and stuff. And this isn't me patting myself on the shoulder. It's no, just, not, this is you, you know, explaining just, what you do completely. Just, I think, you know, if you have an opportunity to have a voice, then whatever you can impart to the next generation that's coming up that ladder or that's working parallel with you, uh, Hello to you or even above you, you know, just share it and just, you know, find that voice. And my voice today is very different to my voice at 25 and will probably be very different to my voice, you know, 10 years from now. But, you know, look, I have a daughter and I have a son and I absolutely want them to find their path and they're going to have their experiences. But You know, Michelle, I think the world that they're going to be going into when they become adults and they're 17 and 19, so we're we're there, we're close. I hope that, I mean, their awareness of what's going on in the world and I I think this generation is so extraordinary because they're so mindful of so much that I don't even know that I was thinking about with a lot of depth whether it was the climate or right, the environment, politics. I just, I was in like la-la land. I don't know, everything was, everything was great. You know, it was going to be fabulous. And these kids are just so aware. A lot of substance and a lot to bring to the table. Mm-hmm. And, and I think it's a fabulous and complicated generation. And 
And I can't wait to see what they do in the world because I do think they're going to do great things. So on that note, what advice, and we can touch on this quickly, but what advice would you give your kids or would you give listeners about obtaining mentorship with people who are mentors? Like how do you, how do you reach out to those people? How do you try to sustain a relationship? What are your thoughts on people who want to start creating mentors in, in, their, in their field or vocation? Well, look, I'm a big believer in networking. And I think that that's something that not many schools historically now, it's been a long time since I've been in, in, in university, so you got to bear with me. But, you know, I think networking is an essential part of your educational experience because at any age, frankly, because when you start to get to know people and then you get to know what they do, you start to sh- create a framework potentially of what you want to do in your life, right? So not everybody knows that they want to be a doctor or this or that. No, it doesn't happen that way. Sometimes you stumble upon things the way I did. I mean, I had an idea, but were it not for the fact that you put yourself out there to start to talk to people about what they do, right? Cold calling. So it's really, before you even pick the mentor, start the networking process because then you start to get to know the different parts of the world that you think you're interested in. And then you inevitably are going to have a connection with somebody that is going to be able to take you on as a mentor if it's, if it's a one-on-one thing or if it's a group thing, sometimes it's a little bit different. You sign up for it. I think it's what you're comfortable with because some people are not good with the one-on-one. You know, if you're, if you're a little bit of an introvert and you're, you're very young and you're starting out, maybe a group setting is the way to go, right, to help you come, kind of bring you out. But I would say to any, I would say to my kids, and I have on multiple occasions over the years, the greatest thing to look back Currently, I mean, I'm, I hope I have a tremendous runway in my career left ahead of me. But as I look back, my favorite part of what I do is the incredible network of friends that I have met and worked with and gotten to know as a result of my career and how much they have meant to me and how much I've learned from them and how that in and of itself, Michelle, has become a real mentorship for me. And I value the opinion of the people who are older. And I value the opinion of that reverse mentorship of people just starting out who have a different point of view. And, you know, I, you know, always be open to that and never be set in your ways because there's always a better way to do something or a different way to do something. And so those are some of the things, but I can't emphasize enough the importance of networking to anyone who's listening here. And you know, it's really helpful advice because I also, I talk to a lot of younger people, especially on the token, on the idea of networking. And a lot of times they will say, the reason why I feel very insecure about networking is I always feel like I'm asking for something. I'm asking for them to do something for me or to introduce me or give me advice. And it doesn't, I don't feel like I'm bringing anything to it. So it's like, why would they take some time to, to talk to me or to help me? And I think you're right in sort of challenging that and saying, well, you know, we can learn from people who are younger as well. There's, there's a whole, especially right now, what's going on with, you know, different social media platforms or things that people are learning in school or the fact that the younger generation is way more aware than, you know, maybe when we were younger. I, I feel like that there is something that everyone can offer and it doesn't have to feel like you're just going and needing something always from someone else. I absolutely agree with that. And, you know, as somebody who I am that person who didn't put my personal life on hold. I had, I had two babies and I had a full-time job. And, you know, I always tried to not bite off more than I could chew. But if anyone, anyone who knows me knows, it was, life was always chaotic. And, and it was great chaos because I was so happy, always happy at my job. And I still am. And I'm very proud to have been a working mom. But, you know, I now have, there's a calmness to me because I don't have, I don't have the two babies and I don't have, you know, it's a different kind of stress now that my kids are getting older. And I feel funny enough when I talk to some of my mentors, I do talk about don't put your life on hold, whether you're a man or a woman, you know, really live your life. You will always have a job. But, you know, your career will get better and better if you enhance that by also living your life. Don't pick a lane. 
really don't because you can't get in either of them back. Time, you don't get to be 25 again. You don't get to be 35 again. You're going to continue to age. And if you can just, whatever your best life is, that's what you should live and whatever those choices are. But I do think it's very important, especially to the women out there. You know, I, I used to say, oh, but if I had more money, oh, but if I did, but no. And then at some point you're like, no, I, I won't be able to do this if I don't stop and say I'm doing this. And I love that. I mean, and, it's, it's, it's so been very, it, I never look back at that, I swear. But you know what, Michelle, I'm sure it cost me a few promotions here and there, no question, but I don't care. So yeah. I got two great kids yeah. out of it and I love my job and you yeah. know, you just, you find your peace within your place. Right. And, and that's a very, very important thing that everybody should feel peaceful wherever they are. I love that. And I, and I think that that's something that keeps coming up with women that I'm doing this with. Like, we, you know, we just had an episode, episode two, we talked to two girls who are actresses and also work at Hallmark. And one of them was saying, you know, consistently we're, we're, we're asked sometimes to put our life on hold for our job. You know, she and I specifically as actors will be asked, don't go on vacation because you might lose out an opportunity to audition or to do this or to do that during this time period. And she would say the same thing. You have to live your life. You have to keep, you know, hanging, you know, spending time, making time for your family, making time for your alone time, you know, taking advantage of going on vacations and living your life, which will then contribute to how well you're doing in your chosen role. So, I mean, I think it's incredibly wonderful advice to give people. But just to sort of end our note on Nickelodeon, because I do have a couple more questions, and then I want to get to Cartoon Network quickly. Sure. But with Nickelodeon, so, you know, as you're, you are responsible for identifying and negotiating and acquiring series, what, let's say, you know, specifically for Nickelodeon now, what were things that you, you realized was specifically Nickelodeon in terms of, I mean, it was a few years ago, but what was specifically like a Nickelodeon thing? What was a, the brand? What, no, no, wait, wait, yeah, what was the considerations for something that would be picked up at Nick? Exactly. I mean, at the time, mind yes, you, this is a very time. long time ago. Yeah. This is going back 12 years, uh, if not longer, so it's a long time ago. But at the time, you know, they were known for... Uh, gender-neutral content, and they could have uh, live-action animation. And, you know, uh, the, the, the target demos for them, as well as cartoon, were similar, 6 to 11, but they also had a preschool block. So it was very, it was different in the consumer that went to Nickelodeon. I still think there is some truth to that, that, that you know, there are kids who consider themselves very brand-loyal to either certain shows or certain actual channels. And I'm sure that's changed and continues to evolve with the advent of SVOD because you have a mix of content from all different brands. And Again, what is SVOD? Just because you mentioned a couple times. Oh, transactional VOD. So like Hulu or Netflix. Great. Or HBO Max or a Peacock. You know, it's, Good to know. it's... So now you aggregate a lot. It's a curation of content of all kinds of genres, right? But even, even those are taking shape in terms of what they're they're looking for it's not it's not it's not the wild west that some people have have feared it would be but you have to experiment with things until you find that space that where you know you can be known for x so at, at cartoon network that's a brand that's gone through so many changes like everyone else but but we tended to have more male eyeballs boys 6 to 11 and at the time, it was because more boys were watching animation. I don't know that, that that argument is still true. You know, we still over-index in certain shows with boys versus girls, but we do get a healthy amount of girls who come to watch our shows. Interesting, because, yeah, I, I definitely, I mean, I watched an extensive amount of Cartoon Network and Nickelodeon as a kid, and I have very specific memories of telling my mother or father, like, turn on Cartoon Network, please. <laughs> but I also remember a lot of animated shows at, at uh, Nickelodeon as well. I mean, you named a couple, but Rugrats and, and all those, you know, shows, you know, the ones I'm thinking of are animated. So I guess, but, you know, and I, I don't know if that changed. It's a different time, though, Michelle, too. Yeah. I think, I'm curious to see post-COVID with animation being an area that hasn't stopped, hasn't really slowed down. Uh, versus live action, which inevitably had to pause, Absolutely. right? Uh, you know, what the affinity of some people who maybe weren't into animation, if they've discovered it, um, you know, uh, it, you know, what are the opportunities there? I, I don't know. I mean, for kids, 
hopefully they've had a level of consistency across the kids' brands during this period. And I think I think one of the things I respect the most about the kids' industry, there is, you know, there's an unspoken brotherhood and sisterhood here where we, we just want to do the best thing for kids. Yes, we are businesses, but we really want to mean something and stand for something and be authentic to our consumers. And right. so it's a taste thing. You might like our show. You might like that one show. You might like it. But ultimately, you're going into safe spaces with these kids' platforms that I've mentioned because not just because of standards and practices, guidelines, but because you have teams that are in place that really, really, really care and understand their consumer. Right. And so and yeah. anything in particular that you're attracted to when you want, when you see certain content and you want it, especially with your master's in early childhood development, I mean, you said you use some of those, you know, theories and some of those practices that you learned in school. What do you look for, especially, you know, because you're shaping these children in a way, these children are watching TV and, and, you know, learning from it, whether it's a moral code or whether it's just for fun, you know, that's, you know, affecting all of these kids. What do you look for in the programming for them specifically? Well, look, it's not my place to, to establish, you know, moral codes for, for my consumer. Fair. That's fair. You know, I'm here to, as, as part of the network that I work for, the networks that I am a part of, to entertain, to make sure it's a safe space for them to feel that there is a level of authenticity and a voice that they can identify with and characters that are diverse. And, you know, there's just a lot that goes into that. But ultimately, you know, we've had people who, and rightly so, you know, they want to, whether it's about religion or divorce or they want to talk about war, whatever, those aren't things that we're going to that you're going to see on, on yeah, that makes sense. It's just not, it's not what we are. That's not what we should be doing. And what we should be doing is creating memories for when these kids are older and they say, I remember when I used to come home from school or Saturday mornings or every day before school, I would watch, you know, whatever it is, whenever it is they tune in that they would identify with something, you know, a show, a character, or hopefully multiple that they remember that very fondly. And, yeah, I mean, that's that how I look back on it. From their complicated lives, because our, our consumers, our kids are very busy these days. Yeah, with multiple gadgets and mm-hmm. they have their iPad next to their phone, next to the computer, next to a TV. And you're like, how much content can you consume in one moment? <laughs> <laughs> you know, I think, you know, ultimately, Michelle, every platform has, as I said, their filters and their brand attributes. Right. That they, try to, they try to work within that framework, right? And so... You know, the good news is that there's no shortage of great content out there and hopefully new generations of creators every single day. There's new people showing up with an idea. And, you know, that's exciting. This is a space that will continue to uh, reimagine itself and it'll try to stay relevant to, to its very young and very demanding consumer. Wonderful thing about kids <laughs> is that they will let you know how they feel about what you're doing so easily and so unfiltered. And I think it's fantastic. Those and focus groups should be hysterical to watch. They're great. They're really <laughs> great. I mean, kids are, kids are fantastic. Honest. Yeah, they're just fantastic. I also saw on IMDb that there were three shows that you got like a particular special thanks. It was Toot and Puddle, Speed Racer, The Next Generation, and Kappa Mikey. And I just oh, wanted- wait, are you serious? Yeah, I'm I saw that. Did you see that? Yes, you're on no. IMDb. And you have these, you know, the three of those gave you special thanks. You know, you have 17 episodes of special thanks on Toot and Puddle and, you know, oh, one episode funny. on Speed. And I was thinking to myself, wow, that must be, that, that must, you must have been super helpful. And I mean, that's very kind of you, Michelle. I have so many friends that have won Emmys. This is kind of, you I know. think it's great. I think it's cool. And it sets those particular projects apart from others. It's like, why them? Like, why we're like, no, out of no. everyone we're going to give an IMDb credit to, you know, Adina deserves one. So that's very sweet. No, they, you know what? It's very hard to get a show picked up and get it made. And I, I would imagine that at the at that time, I and I remember those shows in particular. You know, there's a lot of you have to be a champion for for those creators and all of that. And I'm sure, I'm sure that was just their way of of saying thank you. We know it. We know that you fought for us, or 
whatever you did, but I, I honestly didn't know that. <laughs> That's so funny. I'm glad I did my favorite tell you. you. No, my favorite thank you from the show creators that I, that, that, you know, whose shows I been able to, to help shepherd is that they give me, they create either create a piece of art or, you know, a, a cell or a drawing or something of that show. And my office is covered in just dedicated pieces from all these different people. And, and that makes me feel good. That's the best thank you ever because it feels like a little walk down memory lane for yeah. me. And, and you look at some of these shows and it doesn't matter if the show was the hit or not. It just, it really doesn't matter. I love them all equally. And uh, it's just, it's really that I, that's the one thing about not being in my office that I do miss because I know I, I, it gives me energy, but yeah, that's a really special thing that creators have done. Oh, because the kids, kids content can come from anywhere. Yeah. So, you know, what people don't realize is that a lot of the shows that, you know, their kids are watching may not have originated where you think they could be formats that have been adapted from other places. Pokemon comes from Japan. Yeah. The pig comes from the UK. There's plenty of shows from Canada that are fantastic. There are shows from Australia there are shows from France, there are shows from Germany, you know, I mean, I could go on, but there's just an enormous amount of diversity, even from, you know, the origin of some of the IP that our kids are consuming. And I think that's absolutely fantastic. It's exciting. And so have you seen a difference? I know when you started out, there really wasn't as much in Puerto Rico and the sense of children's programming. Is it different now? So now I'm starting to see not just people writing for kids content, whether it's books or, or their own TV shows, but there's also some animation studios that are up and coming. And, and I'm so excited because I feel, you know, I, I'm very curious to see if there's any opportunities, you know, to work with them on, on their IP, but you know, it's early days, things take, things take time, but to know that, that they're also getting in on the, the whole children's television bandwagon with animation and, and, and some live action shows, I find super, super exciting. Well, and that's I, a, a see what fun place to end on because then people can think about all the, the, the future of that, especially <laughs> you know in Puerto Rico and elsewhere. Thank you, Adina, so much. I mean, I've learned so much in just this one conversation. I'm sure that other people will relate. Thank you. Thank you so much. I really appreciate this. This has been wonderful. It's been so easy to talk to you. Yeah, stay safe and thanks again. Sounds good. These reviews are so fantastic. And like usual, I am going to read one aloud for you guys. Please, if you haven't already, review a rate on on Apple Pod, yes, that's what it's called. And here's one from Mia. Must listen for all actors. As an actress and educator, I highly recommend Mentors on the Mic, filled with key insights to the industry today and support for all creatives. This podcast nails that there is no one way into being successful as a creative today. I appreciate hearing other people's journeys and always having an aha moment after hearing the weekly guest. As an instructor, I'm adding this podcast on on my syllabus as a must-listen. And as an actress, I'm listening because it's a must-listen for me. Thank you so much, Mia. I really, really appreciate it. Thank you so much for listening to Mentors on the Mic. If you enjoyed the episode, please share it with a friend you know would love it. Let me know what you learned or what stayed with you on our Instagram, at Mentors on the Mic. I will be sharing even more information about our mentors there. These are crazy times, and now more than ever, it's so important to connect. Talk to someone about what you learned today who would really appreciate it, and send them the episode. Also, if you love the show, please go ahead and leave us a rating on iTunes. Every week, I'm choosing a review to read on an episode. It really makes a huge difference in growing this. Thanks.